Hey, I'm Mike Joseph, and thank you for listening to Detoxicity, a show by men, about men, but for everyone. I hope you enjoy the content of this podcast, and I want to let you know about a few things you can do to support us and our mission to challenge traditional notions of masculinity and create a more communicative, positive, and loving environment for all. You can subscribe to Detoxicity on any podcast platform that you use to listen. We are available just about everywhere. Also, don't hesitate to rate and comment as these help us move up in the podcast rankings. I'm on social media, or at least I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Feel free to drop me a follow. Now I have a Patreon page, yay! And uh, Patreon gives you the opportunity to get cool merch and exclusive episodes of this podcast in exchange for subscribing. Go to patreon.com slash detoxicitypod to find out more. Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. Adam Bernard is a journalist and a music blogger. Remember those? He's been interviewing rock stars and sharing his thoughts on pop culture for over a decade via his blog, Adam's World. Adam is also a martial artist, a crossfitter, and a cancer survivor. Adam was diagnosed with testicular cancer a few years back and is now officially cancer-free. It's been more than five years, so clap it up for Adam. Uh, he wrote a book. It is called Kimbro, and it documents his journey. And he still serves as an inspiration to others by sharing his story uh, via the internet, in person, wherever he goes. And that is what brings him here to Detoxicity. During our chat, Adam and I discuss his journey through what is obviously a major health challenge, uh, from diagnosis through remission and more. We also discuss the value of social media as a support system, uh, the importance of getting checked out by a doctor on a regular basis, no matter how good health you think you're in. Guys, go to the doctor. And uh, how it feels to be one of the last music bloggers standing. Everybody, here is Adam's story. Hey everyone, my name is Adam Bernard. I'm a music journalist, an author, a cancer survivor, a martial artist, and a general lifter of heavy... Heavy physical things, heavy emotional things, or both? Both. I like the way you, you threw that in there, both. <laughs> right on. So... I guess first things first, I believe back in the day, we initially came into contact via the portals of music journalism many, many years ago. How did you get involved in that? I Well, first of all, I did major in journalism back in college. I was involved in sports journalism at the time because I wasn't quite good enough to play sports. So I was like, how can I stay close to this and maybe get a paycheck once in a while? So I was doing that, but in college for me, and I am about to date myself. Date, was, date away. It was the late 90s. So the internet, not that big. ESPN only had two channels. And one of them only played World's Strongest Man like 23 hours a day, which <laughs> I loved, but still. So after a little bit of time, I kind of realized the room for growth just wasn't there. One story I like to tell is I was working for a newspaper in Connecticut doing basically whatever they gave the new guy to do. So I was at a high school girl soccer game and I knew absolutely nothing about this. And all the other reporters there were in their forties. And I'm like, huh, I don't wanna be doing this 20 years from now. Now, obviously I did not have the foresight to know that the internet would blow up, that cable would blow up, that streaming would happen. But 
at that point, I said, let me see what I can do with one of my other loves in life, which is music. And I just sort of took off from there. That was back in the day of cold calling record labels to get on press lists and those sort of things. And there were a couple publicists and, and labels that were very kind and sort of saying, sure, write about us. The internet's new and cool. And 25 years later, I, more or less, we're in 2023 now. So yeah, it puts us at about a quarter century. Are you still enjoying it? Are you still having fun? You have your hands and feet in so many different things now. It's crazy to me to think that I've been doing this for almost a quarter century. But yeah, my first article in music went up at the end of 2000. So, so yeah, we're really closing out. And my blog, I think, turns 20 this year. And yes, I still have a blog. I'm one of the last remaining music bloggers. And yes, we'll write about anything we like. So send us things. I do still enjoy a lot of aspects of it. Some aspects have changed, obviously, over the years. Some people have changed. Some priorities have changed in terms of what artists need right. and what writers need. I still enjoy doing in-depth interviews with artists that dig into who they are as people versus just what they've just released or what they're about to release. I like doing things that have an evergreen feel to them that you could, I almost said pick up, but that you could read, you could click on six months or a year from now and you'd still get something relevant out of it. Not just, hey, I've got this album coming out because honestly, after two weeks, who cares? Right. And one of the other things I've started doing and I avoided doing this for the longest time because I didn't want it to just be like, Adam writes about random stuff that he likes, but it turns out people are okay with that. I love going through used vinyl and used CDs and finding really weird and quirky stuff. And I've started writing about some of those things. All right. And I've started doing some deep dives into some stuff that most people wouldn't think about deep diving into. One of the first times I did this a few years ago, it was tracking down the original voices of MC Scat Cat and doing the full story of MC Scat Cat. And wow. I was like, I don't know if there's an audience for this. And there was, I mean, obviously it's not the biggest audience in the world, but it was just so much fun to pull off real journalism on a cartoon rapping cat. I think we'll both be dating ourselves talking about MC Scat Cat, but if there is anybody under the age of 30 mm -hmm. listening to this podcast, MC Scat Cat was a an animated cat that originally appeared in a Paula Abdul video, the video for Opposites Attract. And ultimately, that video was so popular that there ended up being an MC Scat Cat album. Yep. And I guess that's all there is to that story. I mean, it was an animated cat, made a record, and, and then nobody bought the record, and that was it. I found it used at Amoeba Music in LA and I picked it up for a couple bucks. Because why not? Depends on how badly you want those couple of bucks. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> but also remember Amoeba had, I don't know if it still does since it moved, but it had that section of like used CDs and it was like buy three, get the fourth free. Yeah, yeah. So you always buy four or eight, just buy one or two. Right, right. That's funny that once you've been writing for a length of time, like 20 years, you'd think that the people that are following you are really following you more for your personality and not necessarily the specifics of what you're writing about. That's part of the hope. I mean, there are times where you absolutely know that all the traffic you're getting is from the artist. And sometimes I feel bad about that. And it's why 
I will, I've done something over the years and I hate to blow up a big industry secret right now, but uh, track premieres and video premieres, all the traffic from those comes from the artist, all of it, unless, I don't even think there's an unless. And I, I love when my friends can get an artist or can get themselves onto one of the gigantic websites, but I'll check the views of that video in a couple weeks and I'm like... It's the same amount of views you would have had if you had just posted this on posted, social media. Right, yeah. Speaking as a former PR person, that the premiere game isn't really important anymore. I think, I think for artists, died. for the yeah. ego stroke, it's important. Yeah, you want to say, I was on Rolling Stone. Right. You don't want to say, I was on Rolling Stone and people read it because I told them to. Right, yeah. It's an ego stroke and it's something that looks nice on a press release, but... It doesn't really move the needle, I think, any other way. But it's cool that you've been able to make your own kind of cottage industry out of that. There's a lot to be said for the entrepreneurship aspect of what you do. And it's tough. I mean, I live in Connecticut, and a lot of what I do is in New York City. I live in a commuter town, but in my 20s, sometimes I'd be getting home at 3.30 in the morning. In my 30s, 2 in the morning, now in my 40s, I'm like, all right, if we can't catch this 11.07 train <laughs> home, it's not good night. And when people it's, say doors at 10, I say, you have fun. Yeah. So funny. I'm with you on the uh, earlier, the better situation. But I was talking to a, per a person who owns an entertainment company who's in their 50s now. And they're like, oh, I still love being out at shows late at night and doing this stuff. And I'm like, man, I at one o'clock in the morning, I want to be in a bed. Yeah. Just, and when are you waking up in the morning if you love being out till three, four? Because yeah. That's six, six thirty, seven o'clock comes quickly. Yeah, it comes real fast. So kudos to people who never grow out is probably a bad term to use. Whose priorities don't change. And who have that youth stamina. Yeah, because I don't even have to be at a show. If I'm in a bar <laughs> at midnight or one in the morning, something is definitely either going really well or really bad because I want to be in or near a bed at that time, usually. I was at a show last month at a venue that's literally five minutes from my home. And when it was like 10, 15 and the main act hadn't gone on yet, we're all looking at each other like, are you kidding me? Right. We know they're going 90 minutes. Like, <laughs> Was it a weeknight? Thankfully, no. Good. Okay. See, but, that's yeah. slightly different, but still, I'm just not a night owl. I, I can be a night owl at home. Yeah. And I you can know. be a night owl if there's nothing to do the next day. Right. But to do that on a weekday when it's like, I got to be bright-eared and bushy-tailed, bright-eared, bright-eyed. Bright yes. <laughs> I don't think ears can be bright, although I could be mistaken. Yeah. That's... The Mets fan who had to witness Joe Musgrove's very bright and shiny ears in the playoffs, ears can be bright <laughs> and it's usually cheating. And yes, I'm still bitter. It's totally cool. So the part of your journey, I think, that has made the biggest impact on people is that you are a cancer survivor. So talk as much as you're comfortable talking. And I, you've got to be comfortable talking because you wrote a fucking book about it. Yeah, I was about to say, <laughs> when people ask me about it, I was like, my life is quite literally an open book. Right. I wrote about it from the first initial pain, which I did not take seriously enough, all the way through the uh, various triumphs. But basically, January 2017, I was training to test for my fifth degree black belt in Kempo when I was told, hey, guess what? You have testicular cancer and it needs to be dealt with immediately. This wasn't like, take your time. This wasn't, oh yeah, do your thing and come back. This was, I got there on a Friday. They said, okay, we're scheduling you for surgery next week. 
Wow. And they said, before that, you have to get a CAT scan to see if it spread. And of course it had, because I'm a guy and I'm an idiot and I didn't go to the doctor soon enough. Right. For the doctor people. <laughs> if you feel a pain there, go to the doctor. Well, I was going to circle back and ask, what were the initial signs that there was something wrong there? I mean, at first I thought, legitimately thought it was just a groin strain. Because between being a martial artist and working out and doing CrossFit, I'm used to small little nagging injuries. So sure. like, whatever. The two things or three that really inspired me to finally call a doctor was one, sitting became uncomfortable. It just had gotten to that point. I like, called a doctor when that happened. Yeah. There was like a huge difference in weight in the two. Listeners can't see me. I'm holding my hands up like scale. But yeah, that's true. And three, just one morning. I was just standing there in the kitchen and this shooting pain happened and dropped to one knee. I still went to the gym afterwards. What, uh, dude? Of course. <laughs> uh, and the worst part was because I didn't have these specialized doctors, I then had to wait two weeks <laughs> to go see a doctor. At that point, he took one look at it and he's like, you're getting these tests. I'm like, when? Now? Oh, right. that's not good. Yeah. Right. If you're ever in a doctor's office and they say they need blood tests and a, an ultrasound and they need it now, you have to know that that's not good. Right. But those various three things, and I found out the third thing, the pain that was shooting through that dropped me to my knee was actually the tumor tearing and bleeding inside of me. Oh! So, yeah, that was pretty brutal. And then I obviously found out the cancer had spread to one of my lungs, but it was not lung cancer. It's still testicular cancer on the lung. And the only thing that matters about that distinction is how they treat it. Wow. So you get that news. What is your thought process? I can't imagine. It was so strange because you go into a doctor's office on a Friday, just thinking like, okay, obviously you're filling your head with good thoughts of, oh, he'll say it's just X, Y, Z and prescribe something and it'll be good. Or he'll say, ice it, you'll be no problem. But in three hours, that gets thrown out the window and you're getting scheduled for surgery. And my first thought was, how do I tell people? Thankfully, my parents live one and a half towns over. So they're only six exits away. But I started doing this loop of local friends that I know and just telling them in person. Mm -hmm. And every time I had to say it, it sucked. You never want to say I have cancer. And then have to react and all this sort of stuff. But every time I said it, it kind of sunk in a little more in the reality. And then I just made the decision of, okay, treat it like a warrior. This is not going to be the end of your life. You got goals. Keep your goals as best as you can and just keep going. And from your work life as well, when you kind of set your own hours, you're very good at being regimented. Yeah. So it's like, I have to keep my own regimen and schedule no matter what. And that was very big in terms of just powering through anything of like, okay, this is an aggravation. It's a hurdle. It's an everyday issue. And we will just compartmentalize it and deal with it like any other issue in life. So a lot of things cross my mind as you say <laughs> that. One is that people and men in general don't go to the doctor as regularly as they should. Not at all. Now, were you a regular checkup guy even? I had a checkup at 30. And then basically the doctor was like, dude, you're perfectly healthy. She didn't say dude, but she was like, you're perfectly <laughs> healthy. 
just keep doing what you're doing and come back in a couple of years. And as someone who is rigorous about working out, healthy lifestyle, healthy diet, in terms of traditional sickness, like a cold or a flu, I get a cold once every five or six years. Right. So I was never really all that worried. I always have a fantastic collection of expired cold medicine because <laughs> I have to buy it once and then the rest of it ends up turning strange colors. And <laughs> you don't get any good, weird side effect from that. It just doesn't work as well. Fair. Yeah. But NyQuil uh, pills change color after time. Good to know. I'm not a huge over-the-counter medicine person. So I thankfully have never witnessed a NyQuil pill or any pill for that matter changing color. It's but freaky. good to know in case I need to yeah. figure that out somewhere down the line. You open a medicine cabinet, you pull them out, you suddenly see these like purplish black pills. Hey, okay. <laughs> these aren't the pills that I yeah. bought. This yeah. isn't going to work right, is it? <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, a trope at this point that men don't go to the doctor regularly, which you should. And look, I'm the same way. It wasn't until I got diagnosed with diabetes that I started going to the doctor regularly. And I was in my 30s when that happened. But prior to that checkup, I hadn't been to a doctor since I was maybe 18. Yeah, it's something we don't do. And especially when it comes to our downstairs area, we're always like, yeah, no one else gets to touch that except right. for me and whoever else I want to have touch that. Right. And it's just like, get over it. Yeah. And another part of that is that even when people are in pain or they know something's wrong, they still don't go to the doctor. That was me. I was like, ah, it's just a strain. I'm going to be fine. No worries. And yeah, no then worries. A strain goes away in a day or two. You have to sort of realize that if it still hurts after a few days, see someone right. and have someone to see. Yeah. And it's so easy to find a doctor. I mean, maybe I'm speaking from a place of privilege because I'm a New Yorker, but the internet, it's not like you got to call people and make appointments. You can do everything online now. Yeah. Well, you can do most things online. I loved that during the height of the pandemic, I kept getting, oh, you have an appointment coming up. Would you like to make this a virtual visit? And I'd always respond, this is a blood draw, right? Like, <laughs> we haven't gotten that to that cool. point in technology yet. Yeah. I'm not doing that at home and mailing it to you. <laughs> I hate needles. Your experience must have cured you of that a little bit. Nope. Oh, wow. Um, we had a fun time. My nurses knew me by the number of F-bombs I would drop every day. It was an everyday thing and got to be a running joke. And I still have to come in for blood tests. For the first year afterwards, you have to go in every month. And then it's every three months. Then it's every six months. But the infusion rooms in one place the blood draw room is sort of around the corner and i would curse and then i'd hear one of the nurses just say adam's here <laughs> yep i feel like a lot of people would get news like that and fall into almost like a shell shock kind of was there ever a point when you thought about your mortality oh yeah yeah especially when i gotta say a lot of people have this view of chemo that comes from television and movies right and they had this view that like oh my god i'm not gonna be able to move it's gonna be the worst torture in the world is it worth it and there are even some doctors who preach that which i can't stand i ran into a few doctors who were like you're not gonna be able to do work you're not gonna be able to do this and i'm like screw you uh, <laughs> well, first of all you don't know me you know what i do right. but the reality of it versus the tv movie version of it 
is a little different. It does suck. It's not fun. The nurses at most places are great. And like I said, I made it a part of my life. For my particular version of chemo, I had to go three, three week rounds, five days a week, then one day a week, one day a week. So for five days a week, I would just pack up my laptop, go in. It was my office for three or four hours. Sure. And that was that. And uh, I don't think I answered your question because I think I forgot it midway through my answer. <laughs> I just considering contemplating your mortality. Oh yeah. A couple times it was the thought of, is this it? And if it is it, am I happy with what I've done in life? And I came to the conclusion that yes, I, I have been happy with what I've done in life. And now even more so because I've written a book, Kimbro, and I'm using it to help other people get through not just cancer, but whatever difficulties they're having in life. I also work with an organization, Immerman Angels, where they connect cancer patients with cancer survivors so we can help guide them right through on. what they're going through. And I feel more at peace with, okay, I'm living a good life. If God forbid it ended today, I think I will have made an impact on folks it's a positive one. I've even said it about my career in journalism. If for some reason journalism for me ended tomorrow, I could look back on it and say, I've done a good job. So in terms of mortality, at this point, I wake up, I'm happy to wake up. And it's another day to just accomplish things and, and hopefully do something great or have some sort of positive interaction. Exactly. <laughs> so I don't know a whole lot about testicular cancer. There are two people from my past that I know of that had testicular cancer. Both of them survived it. What I remember reading about testicular cancer is that it usually strikes people at a fairly young age. Yeah, I was old for right. cancer. Late 30s is old. Right, right. And also that it does have a fairly high survival rate. As long as you catch it and do something about it. Right. Yeah, very, very high survival rate. Most people have to go through a surgery. A lot of people still have to go through chemo and I, this may just be me saying this based on some of my own experiences. I think a lot of us know people who have dealt with testicular cancer, but who didn't say anything about it. Sure. Sure. A lot of people came out of the woodwork when I said, Hey, this is what I'm going through. They would say, Hey, do you know so-and-so also had to go through this? You might want to hit them up. And it's these people in my life who I didn't know had gone through it because we don't talk about these sort of things. Of all the things we talk about with our junk, it's usually conquests or size. Or right. It's not the actual important stuff of health and what they're supposed to feel like. Well, I think that applies to a lot of different things. I talk a lot about modeling behavior in a lot of different ways. And there are so many things that people suffer from or deal with in silence unnecessarily because they're afraid of stigma or being treated a certain way or treated with pity because they had cancer or yeah. you know, whatever it is. And I think it's brave for people who do have experiences like that to come out and talk about those experiences. And I feel like more people should do it just because it, it normalizes it. Dick and your balls are a fucking part of your body. You should make sure everything is kosher down there. As with the rest of your body, we talk about women checking their breasts for lumps and stuff like that. And I think that conversation has become normalized. To oh, yeah. Every woman knows to check themselves. Right. 
But to this day, and I can switch back and forth between the work that I do as a sex educator, is that men have a very weird relationship with their genitalia. And we all have dicks, right? We all have balls. You got to talk about them. Yeah, they're there. Yeah. So it extrapolates to the entire body. We are, as Americans in general, are not taught to be comfortable with our bodies. No. Yeah. We're pretty much cover up. Or if you look amazing, show it off and people will tell you. But yeah, also when it comes to the dick and the balls, do talk about it. Photograph it less. You don't have to send the photographs to other people. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want to dick pick somebody by accident. Exactly. Oh, you don't want to dick pick the wrong person. Yeah. (laughs) But we don't talk about it. We don't have frank discussions about it. And you said Frank. Yeah. (laughs) And beans. (laughs) Nice job there, Adam. (laughs) So yeah, it's not the most fun thing to talk about. I'm guessing women don't like talking about having to check their breasts. They certainly don't like talking about going to the OBGYN, but why do women start going to the OBGYN as I not a woman, but I'm saying like what, like 12, 13 years old, whereas men don't see a urologist based on the waiting room until they're about 75. So why are we taking so long to deal with that health where women from boom, the time they're in the adolescence, post-adolescence, once they're quote unquote, a woman, even though they might not be age wise, right? They say, Hey, we have to get these things looked at. Yeah. From the second their bodies start to change. Yeah. For guys, we're just like, Oh, our voice is changing. Things are weird. We're men now. Right. Yeah. And there has to be a normalization of that. I mean, look, I've only been to a urologist twice in my life, once because I had a UTI and once because I was looking for some ED meds and you have to see a urologist in order to get that taken care of. But again, I don't want to sound like a cliche. It's the whole like mind, body, soul thing. You have to make sure that your body is in decent shape. A lot of people, not just men, I think die from things that are entirely preventable with early detection or regular checkups or what have you. And even diet and exercise. Right. My doctor told me straight up when I was about to go in for chemo, he's like, based on your overall health, your diet and your exercise regime, you're going to get through this better than most. Right. And it's amazing to think that everyone goes through life differently, but to think that because I work out and because I eat right, this horrible thing that's going to sap energy out of me, it's going to go better than it would if I hadn't been doing those things. Sure. So it's like those basic building blocks of life. They apply even when you get dealt a hand that may seem unfair. Because when I asked, hey, how did this happen? Doctor said, bad luck. Bad luck. There's no family history of it. Just happened. Just random. Did your diagnosis and you being open about your diagnosis make other people around you uncomfortable? I'm not sure if it did. I think there are a couple people who openly said, hey, I don't know how to talk to you about this. And I was very cool with that because that sort of admission of, hey, let's hang out, but I don't know how to talk to you. When it comes to this subject, I said, okay, that's fine. I much preferred that than the people who were just like, I can't talk about it. I'm running away. Well, obviously there's not just one way 
But how do you talk to someone who has been diagnosed? And it doesn't have to be cancer. It can be with anything. Who's been diagnosed with depression? Who's been diagnosed with HIV? Who's been diagnosed with... I mean, the best things people did were to basically just treat me like they always had. When I had the first surgery, I when you have a test score moved, you're not doing a lot of moving around. I would uh, imagine. <laughs> yeah. There's some swelling, just to put it lightly, sort of the size of a softball and the consistency of one, too. Yeah, not comfortable. They, were, they have you wear this sort of harness thing to try to control the swelling. But I was like, dude, that's really uncomfortable. So <laughs> there were some other things I had to do. Ice it, elevate it. All these things, but that wasn't going anywhere. I wasn't right. driving. I wasn't running laps. So occasionally a friend would visit and you just come over and just talk about baseball, talk about music, watch a game, chill out. The point was just hanging out with somebody and feeling normal. And to me, that's the best thing you can do for anybody, whether they have cancer or any other kind of sickness. Now, I've never dealt with depression, and I know that's a completely different animal because it's 100% mental, it's 0% physical, although it can affect your physical. Yep. But for anything physical, just your friend, treat them like a friend. If you want to know some information about it, ask. But it doesn't have to be the topic of conversation. I will say on the flip side of potentially having people not be able to talk about it, I had people come up to me or hit me up on Facebook and Twitter and be like, hey, you're the reason I just went to find a urologist. And that's why people should talk about an issue they have and try to do it in a constructive way. I never posted, well, is me or anything like that. It was just like, hey, this is what I'm going through. This is how I'm dealing with it. And people saw it and said, okay, now I'm going to go see a doctor for the first time in 10 years. That's awesome. And that's something really positive that came out of it for other people. And I'm very happy about that. And speaking from the mental health perspective, I don't think that the way to treat somebody is any different than it would be for someone that has a physical ailment or illness. You treat them like a regular person. Like they, it doesn't change anything fundamentally. You're the same Adam, no matter how many balls you have. Yeah. I'm the same Mike, whether I am having a depressive episode or not, you treat the people you care about like they're still people you care about. It's not like I grew up. And even if I did grow a horn, I would want you to treat me the same. Exactly. So the day that you were told that the cancer was gone or that you were in remission, what did that feel like? It was strange because I kind of didn't realize it at the time because it was a false finish line. Okay. I went through chemo. And actually, the remission thing was almost less exciting than a couple weeks later when he was like, okay, your white blood cells are back up. You should have no problem being in crowds again. And I was like, all right, first train in the city. Want to go to a show? Yeah, exactly. That was it. I was like, I'm going to a show. And I found a friend of mine. Oddly enough, the same friend of mine who was performing the night after I got diagnosed and I was in the city for her show, she was performing again. Like right after I found out I could be in the city, I was like, Anna Rose, you. Right. You that's a bookend. Yeah. yeah. But so like my chemo ended May, a couple weeks before Memorial Day. Okay. I had a follow-up CAT scan in, I don't remember exactly when the follow-up CAT scan was, but what it said was, hey, your cancer's all gone. Do you have no cancerous tumors? But the tumor on your lung stuck around. 
So it's no longer cancerous, but it's still there and it's growing. So now we have to cut out part of your lung. So as excited it was to be in remission, it's like, oh crap, now I got to go through a whole nother surgery again. But my dad, who retired lawyer, but worked in the pharmaceutical industry, immediately said, you need to get this done the same year because you've already maxed out your deductible. (laughs) So made sure that happened. Right. So the lung surgery to take out part of my left lung and one night in the hospital, I, I saw the full annotated bill. And it was almost a hundred thousand dollars. Jesus. And since I'd maxed out my deductible, it was like a hundred bucks. <laughs> it just goes to show you how much of it's bullshit. Yeah. Oh man. So yeah, it was exciting to be able to be in the city again and, and be healthy, but then to immediately then have to just have another surgery to recover from. But each surgery I had goals in terms of working out and hit every single one of those goals. And it's very important in life to have goals whether they're large or small. And I would argue it's more important to have small goals so you can lead up and build up to something rather than have this huge goal. And a lot of people get depressed if they can't reach that. And no, a ladder has steps. That's right. You you don't start at the top of the ladder. No. And (laughs) if you reach for it, that's fine. And if you don't get up there, but you still get 75% of the way, You've done a hell of a lot. Good. That's right, man. There are a lot of baseball players that only make it to, oh, double A. And what? They're still better than 99.9% of the baseball players in the world. Right. They still manage a large chunk of their dream. From a post-surgery standpoint, was there ever a freak out moment of, I'm going to look different? And if I'm dating somebody, like, how does this work? Oh, there was, yeah. Well, first there was the fertility issue. Right. If you have a test score removed and you go through chemo, there is a slight chance of infertility. Mm-hmm. Different doctors give you different percentages. Some say upwards of 10 to 15%, some say 5%. But regardless, you are advised that if you want to have kids to immediately put something on ice. Sure. So I, I learned the ins and outs of fertility clinics at that point. And there was the thought of, am I going to be viewed differently? when intimacy comes into the picture in the dating scene. And at least with the women I've dated, it hasn't been an issue. I'm sure part of that has to do with me being in my 40s. and You're not dating 19-year-olds. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Not to put a big umbrella over the younger generations, but when we're younger, we tend to have weirder hangups that we don't have when we're older. When we're older, we have different hangups. We all have stuff. We all, absolutely. But when we're younger, it's much more of an aesthetic thing where it's like, oh, that person has a mole there. Now it's <laughs> sort of like, oh, that dude's got one ball. Yes, but everything works. And uh, the tagline I like to say, if anyone has any questions, is everybody knows with one potato missing, the steak looks bigger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I respect for that. Nice job there, Adam. This is probably a dumb question for me to ask, knowing your background. Why'd you write a book? I wrote a book because a bunch of people told me to. A bunch of people I really respected in my life said I had to. It kind of started when people started calling me inspiring and I was very uncomfortable with that. I turned to my buddy, Chris, who at the time completely owned and operated the CrossFit gym. He founded it that I go to. And he had put together a whole program for me while I was going through chemo. And 
I turn to him and I go, hey, man, I'm just a guy who's trying to not change my life. I'm just someone who's not quitting. And he said, do you realize how few people react like that when they're diagnosed with cancer? And his wife, Meg, was like, you should write a book. And a few other people said, you should write a book. So I said, all right, I'll start writing it. And I basically took a week. I did a whole bunch of journalism work in advance so I could take a week to really plow through a lot of words. Wrote a book in a week? Well, I wrote a chunk of it in a week. I took two weeks, I believe, to write the first two thirds of it. And then later on another week to write the last third. Holy shit. Is there people that take years to write books? Well, and my next book's going to take like five, 10 years because it's about <laughs> a subject that's going to take a billion years of research. Who knows if I ever get it done. But in this case, I am very, very old school. And when I mean old school, I have this notebook that I'm going to hold up that no one can wow. see. Wow. Podcast. And it has the date and it has the things that I did in pencil. It provided the easiest outline in the world for a memoir. So you were journaling the whole time that you went through this basically. I didn't realize it, but I was because I kept the calendar. I knew every single thing that had gone on. And I don't know how I remembered some of these things, especially based on some of the drugs they had me on. But I can still tell you the exact layout of my hospital room in Stanford Hospital, even though I was on heavy doses of morphine. Just certain stuff stuck with me. And midway through writing it, I kind of realized... First of all, I didn't want to do it as an ego project. I was very adamant with myself of like, it's about me, but can it not be about me? Oh, I, I kind of joke around when it comes to fame, because like we're all on social media. To say you don't want to be famous is a lie if you're on social media. But yeah. I don't want to be so famous that anyone has a deep caring of who I'm dating or anything like that. Yeah. I just want to be famous enough to be able to have an audience that can, I can help musicians build their audience and then hopefully help people through cancer and other things. So I'm writing this and, and midway through, I kind of realized like, I'm not writing this for me. I'm writing this for anyone else who's going through it and for anyone else who's going through something. And I've sent copies of the book to people who have been diagnosed. And I had a, book signing in Trumbull, Connecticut at Next Chapter Books last year. And there was one that they said, like, listen, this mother, she's not going to be able to make it. Her son just got diagnosed. Can you sign this in advance? I'm like, absolutely. I drove up there, signed it. And yeah, so that's something else that after the fact really made me realize, yeah, I was right while writing it. This isn't for me. It's for other people and hopefully it continues to help other people isn't it amazing how using your voice and not even actively using your voice just talking randomly about shit that you went through can be such a blessing for somebody else who may not be able to articulate a similar situation the way that you can it's wild to think about but it's why we should all talk about the things we're going through you know, and I don't mean the whole, I burned my toast. My life sucks. Yeah, the minutiae of it. The real stuff we're going through. And I feel like I use social media differently than a lot of people do. But I feel like by me talking about it, I received an overwhelmingly positive, supportive reaction 
And I think as long as you don't spend all day being negative on social media, you're going to receive positive reaction and you're going to have people come out of the woodwork that you didn't realize. Love is a big word, but love, support, and care about you in a way that you didn't imagine. People from my gym that I thought were just acquaintances weren't just acquaintances. There are people who really cared. People in my building really cared. Um, and it, it's interesting because if you start revealing stuff about yourself, there are going to be the people you thought were lifelong friends. That disappear into the woodwork. They're like Homer Simpson into the bush. That is exactly what they are. But you find so many more other people that you gain this new connection with or this deeper connection with. And it's amazing. So if it's cancer, if it's depression, if it's anything, just say something. If be as open as you can be without compromising your safety. Yeah, that's a big thing. I wanted to ask, after doing 130 episodes of this podcast and no one has ever brought CrossFit up, two of the last three people I've spoken to have now brought up CrossFit. How did that enter your life and what do you get out of it? Well, first of all, I'd like to point out to everybody listening that it was not the first thing I mentioned. Was it? Okay, I'll give you a clap for that. Yeah. So basically, I have been in the martial arts I'm going to say my entire life because it's been since I was seven years old for various reasons. I grew up, I hit my growth spurt very late. So when you're a foot shorter than everybody else and you're a guy, you're going to get into some fights and you're going to have to win them. Right. But in college, I got into the gym, but you just do what your friends are doing at the gym. You know, like I'm going to bench, I'm going to do arm curls. Not necessarily the smartest about it, but you start that lifestyle of trying to be fit for whatever reason, vanity, health. I mean, if you're doing it for vanity, you're still getting healthy unless right. you're taking drugs. <laughs> and buddy of mine, he was working at a gym where I was a member. And actually my mom was a member of the gym and he was her trainer at the time. Oh, wow. And he opened a CrossFit gym And it was actually still is within walking distance of where I live. (laughs) So it was very easy to just be like, I'll give this a shot. We'll see what it's all about. There are always people who give the the boogeyman story of like, everyone gets injured, blah, blah, blah. If that were true, I don't think it would be this big. And these are my biases at play. I think of CrossFit and I think of gym culture in general. And the first thing I think of is toxic bro culture. There's an aspect of that is in every gym in the world. And at that point, the word bro is unisex. Right, right, yeah. yeah. I mean, the same way that you talk about toxic masculinity, which is more or less what this podcast is about, and it's not just practiced by men. Yeah. Right. It's a unisex concept that the word bro was thrown onto. Right. When the whole locker room talk thing came out with the former president, I did have a buddy sort of turn to me and be like, we have no right to criticize that, do we? (laughs) And it was just like, yeah, I mean, like getting on his case for the thing we hear in the locker room all the time. But do you take part in that? I mean, look, even when I did go to the gym on a fairly regular basis, A, I didn't go with people. So I guess that's part of it. But also I didn't hear talk like that after I graduated high school in the locker room. For the most part, it's just like a handful of people. And usually it's the very young people. Right. Again, to circle back to that umbrella of when you're younger, you have 
your issues. You don't always know better. Yeah. The comedian Jim David, I believe it was, had this great line where he said, the only thing people in their 20s are good for is looking better than people in their 30s. (laughs) Not always the case. Not always the case, but it's sort of one of those things of like, you're going to get smarter as you go along, or at least you should. Yes, you should. Um, You absolutely should. When I was in my 20s and 30s and then got into the 40s, I felt like every five to 10 years, I realized a lot of the things I thought five to 10 years earlier were bullshit. That's not quite the same thing in my 40s. Now that in my 40s, I'm like, actually, I'm starting to learn life now. But until then, don't take yourself too seriously in terms of your thoughts and yourself and the world. But no, the, the toxic culture, there will always be a bit of that and sometimes it's negative uh sometimes it is someone demeaning somebody else sometimes it's not meant to be negative sometimes it's meant to be a joke an example of this would be something we don't do this anymore because the membership of the gym has changed Mm -hmm. Uh, but there used to be sort of a running joke where if someone was like sweating and dying and just staring at their barbell at the ground maybe they have to do another deadlift there's god knows how many there were in this workout or they have to do another power clean someone will walk by and be like hey go to help you out with that and go what was not being a giant pussy (laughs) and it's sort of like okay yeah you you chuckle at it because you're like all right which is i i totally get where you're going with that where it is a joke yeah but also is that Right. You're yeah. equating being soft with being a woman. Yeah. Uh, which is incorrect. Right. Because let me tell you, one of the women at our gym, she ends up competing in the CrossFit Open and doing amazing stuff. I'm always like, holy shit. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, dude, my baby sister's a fucking power lifter. My sister could break me in half. Yeah. So <laughs> you ask who's the pussy here. It, yeah. it, it ain't her. <laughs> yeah. Um, some of it's playful, some of it, but yeah. You don't see it as much in the CrossFit gym because as weird as this sounds, it's more of a community. Right. In the big box gyms that you'll see it more in locker rooms and things, but not that like more of the younger generation still sort of, I don't know what's the phrase, filling their oats or. That's an old person phrase, Adam. I had my druthers. Let me tell you how things would go here. Really grinds my gears. And the other thing which you brought up is that as a person who does CrossFit, CrossFit was not the first thing that came out of your mouth when we started talking. Yeah. Sorry, I got to take off my hoodie. It got really hot in there. As I'm like stripping mid-podcast, see the views we could get. All right. right. At least you're not pulling your ball out and sticking it on the table. That's for the OnlyFans. Oh, God. No, the joke about CrossFit is, was it a a CrossFitter, a vegan, oh. and oh, what's the other one? Was the other one, and an atheist, walk into a bar and you know it because the first thing they said immediately. Like, yeah. yeah, it's part of the personality type. <laughs> it's it's a trope. And I remember talking to somebody, they were like, that's a cult. People I, think that. All right. But if it is, it's the fittest cult. Wouldn't you want to be part of that cult? The one that in the zombie apocalypse, we're the ones who are going to help everybody out. I mean, that's a good point. I'm going to align myself with the healthy folks. Yeah. I mean, you want to be with the ones who can get weapons and run and climb things and build things. 
Well, I mean, if you're doing CrossFit, you don't need a weapon because you can just naturally kick everybody's ass. I mean, you're still going to need a weapon if it's zombies. Good point. Right? Yeah. So you are cancer-free? Yes, cancer-free for five Congrats. years. Congrats. The, the big mark is that five-year mark. I almost felt like I couldn't name my book when I named it because it's Kimbro Embracing Beast Mode to Beat Cancer because technically you haven't beaten it until the five-year mark. But I was like, eh, we're going to put it in there anyways. It was optimistic. Plus it was Beast Mode to Beat. It was the alliteration thing. Yes, yes. Looking back on all that you went through, you obviously have a super positive outlook. You had a positive outlook. Then you have a positive outlook now and you're using your experience, like I've said already, the best possible way. Is there any lingering trauma when you think back on it that just makes you feel like, oh, that sucked? I don't know if it's trauma, but I'm saddened by some, like only a couple friendships fell off, but I am saddened by the ones that did because they were people I was especially close to and I thought were, not that I needed anybody to step up, but that I thought would have been the first ones to step up. And they just never did. But I think there's, you don't know, obviously. Do you think yeah. that maybe they were like, oh shit, my friend's going to die. I don't want to be around for that because I'm scared. It could be that. It could have been that they couldn't handle it. I actually heard through the grapevine, one of my buddies told me someone actually said they didn't like how positively you were handling everything. Really? Yeah. And apparently his reaction was like, what the fuck's he supposed to do? You know, crawl in bed and fucking get in the fetal position and just cry every day. You have to be positive that you're going to get through it, that you're going to beat it, that you're going to continue to live life. And I was positive before all of that. Actually, a weird set of circumstances sort of came together right beforehand. I had read a book called The Art of Peace. It's the teachings of the founder of Aikido, okay. uh, one of his students wrote down these various ideas and thoughts he had. And each page is just one thought. It's a quick read, but it sticks with you. Okay. And it cemented some of my ideas and even grew them in terms of how to live life positively, how to live life effectively. And then I had done an interview. Actually, I believe I did the interview the same month I was diagnosed with Dia Frampton from Megan Dia, who is just a wonderful, lovely individual. She's awesome. And she was having this album come out. And I feel like I can look this up. It was one of these list interviews and we were doing Dia Frampton's five tips for overcoming obstacles in life. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, holy crap, all of these things coming together in retrospect really prepared me for what I was about to go through. And then- you believe the in signs. Yeah, the funny story from Chemo is that interview was was done and handed in. And then my editor was like, hey, we're gonna put this one up early because someone else flaked. I'm like, can you let him know the guy who literally is going through chemo right now has the needle in his arm, got his stuff in early? Huh. <laughs> Hit a deadline, people. Right, yeah, seriously. <laughs> But I forget what my point was. I guess it was just kind of like any regrets or trauma from your experience. Like I said, I still hate needles. I will always hate needles. No tattoos? No acupuncture? No, I was told at one point, we could acupuncture. Like, nope. My buddy who owned the gym did dry needling. I'm like, you're not touching me with those things. <laughs> I did the cupping thing at one point. That was Cupping beautiful. is amazing. It works, but it's so strange. The other reason for not getting a tattoo is I'm very non-committal when it comes to that sort of stuff. <laughs> hey. <laughs> 
The <laughs> only one I would consider just for pure poetry, double entendre sake, is getting a tattoo of former Russian pop duo tattoo. Tattoo? You could get a tattoo would, of Herva Villages from Fantasy Island who played tattoo. Exactly. I'm an open book. And I think for people who can be comfortable being an open book, it's a wonderful way to connect to the word help is something that can, it can upset people. Mm -hmm. I was someone who didn't like seeking help in any way, shape or form. I'm an only child. I'm Gen X. I live by myself. I work for myself. You're a guy. Yeah, <laughs> but... People think asking for help is weakness. It's actually one of the strongest things you can do. It is the knowledge that none of us can do this alone. Amen. And I say the knowledge, people want to say admission. It's not admission. It's just the knowledge. Because admission is like, oh, I'm weak. No, no, no. None of us are so strong that we can do this all alone. And being open enough to say, hey, I have this problem. I'm going to say nine times out of 10, you're going to find someone in your life who's dealt with it. Or even if they're not currently in your life, if you're on some form of social media, some stranger will become a friend. Yeah, you're absolutely right. No one has to be alone unless they want to be. And we have these wonderful things, these suicide hotlines and various things where you can talk to somebody about something. And there's a wonderful anonymity in that. Right. Which is like you're admitting something without having to admit it to your own circle of friends. But if you admit it to your own circle of friends, the right people will lift you up. The wrong people will fall away. And I refuse to believe that in a world of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and on TikTok and all these other places that you are not going to find a couple people who will lift you up and, and either guide you or just there for you. Yeah. I think a lot of people focus on if I am open about this thing, then I will lose people who are close to me. And I think you have to adjust your thinking and be like, you're going to lose people, but the people that stick around are going to be the real ones. Those are going to be the ones that really, really are worth keeping. Yeah. It's, it's a wonderful thing to just say, Hey, I'm going through something. And just see the reaction that is this too, or even just, this is going to sound silly, but it's so real. When I posted up the, what I call my cancer that first night, even just people clicking the love icon, right? it means something. Right. It's a show that you're there. Now there's a care icon, but back then there wasn't. But the love, after that, I never hesitated to click on that. Because, yeah, it's going to make someone feel good. If someone does something well, just say, hey, congrats. If someone's going through something, if you have the time to talk, say, hey, and some people will take you up on it, some people won't. Oh. You cannot control that. But mm -hmm. someone on Twitter the other day, who I've never met in person, we followed each other for a very long time. He revealed that he was diagnosed with cancer. And I'm like, listen, man, my DMs are always open. If you need to talk about anything, just hit me up. And back when I said I had cancer and was going through it, it was one of my friends on Twitter who lives overseas, who clearly we've never met. 
he hit me up and was like, I went through testicular cancer. What do you need to know? And it was just so helpful because guess what? At two in the morning, if I need to know something, first of all, the time difference was perfect, but also I wouldn't have to call some doctor line 24 hours and wait. I can just be like, Hey man, is X, Y, Z normal? And he can say yes. So all these things are just helpful. We have these networks that we can use if we just open our fucking mouths and say that we need something. And if we don't spend all our hours trying to outflame each other. Yeah, um, I mean, the negative aspect of social media is something that gets discussed ad nauseum. But it sounds hippy-dippy, but if you put good in the world, chances are you're going to get good back. Yeah, and I've had people tell me recently... Been like, whenever I'm down, I just go to your Facebook page, your Twitter page, because I know something's going to make me feel good. Then I've accomplished something. There you go. That's amazing. <laughs> Adam, 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 thank you so much for being on the show and for sharing your story and being a survivor. Uh, we appreciate you here at Detoxicity. I'm sure all the people listening appreciate you. And uh, early detection really is a thing. So folks out there, if something feels off, make. I mean, first of all, let's back up for a second. First of all, don't be ashamed of your body. Make sure you're looking at your body, touch your body. Uh, You are the person that knows your body better than anybody else. So if you notice that something is weird or off, make sure you get your behind to a doctor and get it checked out because uh, early detection saves lives. And that uh, is regardless of what gender you are or if you are not a gender. Anyway, uh, you can find Adam at... He is at Adam's World Blog on Twitter. Uh, He is strangely not on Instagram. And you can find the blog itself, adambernard.blogspot.com. Kimbro is his book. It is out. It has a five-star rating on Amazon.com. The full title is Kimbro Embracing Beast Mode to Beat Cancer. Uh, It is available as a paperback. It is available as a Kindle book. So uh, make sure you check it out if you want to know more about Adam's story. Adam, hopefully we'll have you back at some point. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, Once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, Follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as DetoxPodGuy. Uh, You can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, Please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, Rate, comment, help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings. Uh, Follow me on social media. Like I said, uh, follow our Patreon or subscribe to my Patreon, actually. Patreon.com slash detoxicity pod you get access to exclusive episodes you get episodes a little earlier than the general public you get a cool ass sticker lots of stuff once again patreon.com slash detoxicity pod quick shout out to calvin williams for providing the music and uh doing his magic on the logo which was originally designed by jacob block i thank you all for listening i wish you all the best please take care of each other till next time peace